Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. And today I'm pleased to have Joe Vigor Mungovin here with me to talk about her book, Joseph, The Lifetimes and Places of the Elephant Man, which was published late last year by Mango Books. Joe is a historian of local history in Leicester, which is also the birthplace of Joseph Merrick. She's a tour guide at the Leicester Cathedral and the Verger at Leicester's Cathedral of St. Martin's. And Joseph, The Lifetimes and Places of the Elephant Man is her very first book. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hi. You had first come to my attention, and I'm sure many other people as well, through a Facebook group set up around two years ago or so about Joseph Merrick, when you began to share your research as well as photographs about the Merrick family's history in Leicester. That really blew the socks off a lot of us. And so I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your background and what led to your interest in the story of Joseph Merrick and how all of that led to you to decide to write a book. I've always had a fascination for um, genealogy and um, history, especially Leicester's history. My main interest was probably more medieval, um, but working at Leicester Cathedral and being around the Victorian architecture of Leicester, I started studying a little bit more into Victorian history and also having traced my own family tree back to about 1799. Uh, My ancestors were freemen of the city of Leicester. So the interest basically started there. Um, I've also been interested in the Elephant Man since a a very early age. Having been brought up in Leicester, there were many stories, and then seeing the film in the 1980s, um, and obviously believing what the film said, sort of quite heart-wrenching. And I just wanted to read more, and especially to know more about his family and his life in the city, our city, because that is never written about or ever shown. And you have met some uh, relatives that are alive today. Is that right, in the course of your research? Or? Yeah, I have. I met Joseph's second cousin, who lives five minutes from where I live. Uh, her name's Pat. Um, I met her, and she shared a lot of her photographs. She, she's on the Potterton side, Joseph's mother's side. I also spoke a few times to Tom Norman's great-granddaughter as well. And I've also met um, Pat's son, who would probably be Joseph Merrick's third cousin or second cousin once removed. And I'm also in con. Yes, that's right. They're the only ones I've spoken to. And I've also had... Michelle Merrick, who is related through marriage to Joseph, who forwarded my book as well. Right. And Pat, I believe she's the one who supplied the uh, DNA for the Discovery Channel TV show that aired about 10 years ago. Yeah, she did. I think the the documentary is about 2002, um, which is where I first discovered her after watching the documentary. And because the documentary said she still lived in Leicester. So I traced her through through that. So, yeah, she provided the DNA. But as she's told me, that there's no, there's nothing on her side of the family, any deformities or, it sounds awful, doesn't it, but any type of birth defects, there's nothing, nothing at all, and nothing in the DNA. Now, as you know, and I assume most of our regular listeners do as well, that Rippercast released a Merrick episode a little over a year ago with Jeanette Sitton, Neil Bell, and Philip Hutchison, focusing on... Jeanette and May Strohshane's book, Measured by the Soul. Mm-hmm. That particular podcast lasted nearly three hours and covered a lot of ground, and I hope not to repeat too much of what <laughs> was discussed. And thank, But thankfully, you've written a book that I see as entirely different than any book about Merrick I've read before, in which nearly the first half of the book takes place before Merrick is even born and examines the life and times of his parents' families on the Mm -hmm. Pottersons on his mother's side and on Merrick's, of course, on his father's side. And as I was reading it, I found it really as equally as interesting as Joseph Merrick's story in that although I, I knew the book was ultimately leading to the birth of Joseph in his life, it was almost as though you took, if you took Joseph Merrick completely out of the picture, the first section could stand alone as a very good biography. <laughs> you do not agree? <laughs> yeah, that is exactly what I wanted to do. Exactly. Good. Because it is really about just like the struggles of one particular Victorian family. And 
And um, I don't know if they were necessarily their struggles were unique to their to, you know, their class experience. I, I assume not not very unique. Um, but the level of detail you include in order to flesh out their surroundings in Leicester at the times they were living in is imp- is really impressive. Um Thanks. I mean, you go into, you know, the diseases uh, brought on by the poor sanitary conditions in the city, the type of transportation that was going on, building the uh, the clock tower, you know, for to improve the traffic flow and describing the different shops in this in, that existed in the city and what they sold. And and uh, it's all really heavily detailed, and I really enjoyed that part. How did you go about researching this first section that takes place prior to Joseph's birth? And did you enjoy that research as much as me as a reader enjoyed reading it? Because it must have been a little challenging as a writer to make all of this backstory so interesting, knowing that eventually you were going to have to come to the Alpha Man. Yeah, um, I absolutely loved it. I can't. Um, explain how much I really enjoy genealogy and family history. Um, Living in Leicester, it helps living in Leicester, living in the city where he was born really helped because I've lived here all my life. A lot of my research took place in the um, Leicestershire Records Office, which is only five minutes from where I live, which is a fantastic help. I work in the city, so I use the Central Library a lot that had a lot of books on Victorian Leicester. I've also got my own collection of Victorian Leicester books, um, going from the Joseph Dare reports on poverty in the city um, to more recent books up to the war and about the slums of Leicester. I also used the newspaper archives where I got a lot of the stories from that the stuff they reported in the Victorian times was fantastic. Plane crashes, people getting money from the agricultural societies, from charities, it's all there which is more than what they report nowadays. And I also use birth and death certificates to find out how people died, where they, where they lived, where they were born, and also Welford Road Cemetery to find out where the Potterton's and the Merricks were buried. And that way you can actually link up families by looking who's buried in the family plots or who's buried nearby and matching up the surnames. And that's how basically I went about it. I was very lucky because I live here. I've seen some of the television and and I've listened to some of the radio interviews that you've done. And it's, I think, primarily, if if not exclusively, Lester-based promotion to where the, the interviewer is almost like treating this as a local history book. You Do you know what I'm saying? To where yeah. the way they frame their questions and the, their comments to you, oh, look. You know, oh, you just have so many wonderful pictures of old Lester, and I mean, it's kind. Of, it's um, is that how it's basically being treated there in in Lester as more of a local history book? Because I can tell you, coming from a person who lives in Kansas and has never set foot in Lester, it reads definitely as a Victorian English history book, and you don't have to know much of anything about the city of Lester to come away with a greater sense of the lives of the Merrick and Potterton families. How do you define your book? Do you look at it more as a local history book? Because it does have much broader appeal. I wrote it as a book on Joseph Merrick. But yes, I think most of my promotions have been in the city. I think a lot of it is, is people in the radio presenters want to get across to the public about the history of our town. And I do think it promotes it extremely well. Although, you know, if you're not from Leicester, re- reading it, you, you do get a sense of Victorian England. But I don't know, I suppose deep in my heart, I did want to promote Leicester's Victorian history, which I think I did. And I imagine, of course, if you're from there and you know the streets that you refer to and the buildings that, you know, are no longer there anymore in most cases, it would bring just so much more richness to the story. Um, But uh, like I said, knowing nothing about the city, there's still a lot that a person can take away from it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's get into um, some of the individuals you write about in your book. And I'm going to leave a lot of the backstory. I don't want to give away too much. So I'm just, uh, I want to emphasize to my listeners, this, the section that predates Joseph's birth is, 
is uh, something that if you think you know everything about Joseph Merrick, you got to get this book to read just that first half because there's so much new information involved. It's amazing. After Joseph's born, Mm -hmm. um, you title one of your chapters a little tongue in cheek, I think, as the wicked stepmother (laughs) of the East, which is which is a reference to Jeanette Sitton's characterization of Joseph Merrick's stepmother, Emma, that I think she made just on this podcast. I don't know if that's how she refers to um, the stepmother in her book as well, but your footnote identifies the podcast as the source of that quote. Which, uh, But anyway, so Emma is primarily blamed uh, for meting out such bad treatment towards Joseph that he eventually was forced to flee his home and live with his uncle. Yeah. And although you don't make her out to be a saint, and you concede that there may have been some physical abuse in the household, you don't go so far as other authors have gone in demonizing her. So can you discuss with us how you picture Emma and Joseph's relationship? Well, reading about the way children were brought up in Victorian times, I think she was pretty normal, to be honest. Um, as I said in my book, the Victorians believed in spare the rod and spoil the child. Right. And, you know, times were hard. You know, she had a husband out probably working 12, 13 hours a day. He brought into his marriage two less able children. She had two children. Joseph was at the age where he could go out to work and needed to work and they needed to bring money onto the table. I don't like to condemn people without knowing them. And I had no right to to write nasty comments about her based on just a small extract from Joseph's autobiography that could have just been written by one of the showmen to advertise him, to make it a sensational story. Right. No, all we know on is that Joseph left home. Yes, he says he was had severe thrashings by his by his stepmother, which yes, he probably did, and like many other children back in Victorian times, and it's an it's maybe an awful thing to say that yes, he did have these deformities, but other than that, he was an able-bodied human being that could go out and do some kind of work and bring money into the house, mm-hmm. and if he do that and they couldn't put food on the table, why should Joseph get more food? than any other member of the family. His father was the main breadwinner. He needed the larger portions to go out to work. And I think that's possibly how it was back then. Not all of the families. So I can't I can't condemn Emma. I didn't know her. I don't know much about her. I can only go on her family circumstances and how and where they lived. The section on the workhouse, like I said at the beginning, I don't want to re-go over Joseph's entire biography necessarily. Long story short, he leaves uh, his family home and spends a couple of years, I believe it was, with his uncle Charles and mm-hmm. had a cigar manufacturing business. Joseph's deformities got so so bad that he could no longer perform those tasks. So he, so he ends up checking himself in the workhouse. And um, the section on the workhouse, particularly your description of Christmas time at the workhouse was really great. And uh, I can tell you just did a lot of research into the workhouse and, and learning that workhouse infirmaries were almost like minor care emergency centers that we have in modern days, like community health clinics was interesting since I imagine a lot of us in this day and age hear the word workhouse infirmary and think of some hellish prison-like environment where everyone's chained to their beds to just die or something you know i mean there were by no means pleasant places to be but your book does a really good job of describing them yeah one one question i do have is about exiting the workhouse for the last time because on the one hand his discharge states that he left voluntarily but then you mentioned that sam tor and the group of showmen he put together seemingly like had to vouch for joseph before he was allowed to leave and i was curious about that was leaving the workhouse like a parole type situation where one had to have job prospects on the outside before they were allowed to voluntarily leave or how did how did that all come together do you think with joseph leaving well to be honest with you i haven't got a clue about whether 
you know, you have to have a job before you can leave the workhouse. But reading through Joseph's memoirs and how he got out, I do believe that he probably had had enough of the place, wanted to be independent, maybe saw Sam Tor advertising in the local paper and decided, mm, yeah, I could do that. But because he'd already left the workhouse three years previously for a short time, couldn't get any work and ended up coming back. I think I think Joseph maybe wanted to make sure he could get employment before leaving. So maybe wrote to Sam Tor, found out from Sam that, yeah, that's fine, you know, come work for me and we'll come visit you, have a chat with the warden. And then he left. But I think Joseph, being the independent person he was, wanted to make sure he could actually get work before he left. And I think that's probably what he did. Contacting Sam Tor while he was in the workhouse took a bit of guts um, on Joseph's part from the way I kind of read it. Because from what you described, Tor... He was a very well-known and successful entertainer at the time. And by Joseph contacting him, I mean, he was pretty much going straight to the top, as we say, you know, go go big or go home kind of a thing. Don't you think that it, it, it does show some determination and a little bit of courage for Joseph to, to choose out of all, I assume, you know, Santor was one of dozens of dime store museum operators in Leicester at the time. Yeah, yeah, I think he did. And why not? I mean, from what I've read about Joseph and how Tom Norman describes him, he was obviously very independent and knew his, knew his own mind. And I think like a lot of us, you know, if you're going to go for it, go for it. And why not? And I mean, I was surprised when I read in the newspapers about the type of work Sam Tor did. He wasn't, he didn't do penny shows or freak shows. He did variety shows on his stage, but maybe that was the only name he saw in the newspapers. I've seen a lot of advertisements in the local Leicester papers, Sam Tor just advertising his uh, Palace of Varieties, and maybe that's what sparked an interest in Joseph. Merrick was shuffled around to a couple of other showmen before he landed in the employ of Tom Norman. And through your research, you probably know about Norman than anyone else around. So I'd like for you to give us a sense of uh, what type of person Tom Norman was. Most of our listeners will know him only from the Bites character in the David Lynch movie. And uh, so if you could describe to us a little bit of Norman's background and how Joseph uh, came to work for him. Yeah, Tom Norman came from East Sussex um, in the southern counties of um, England had no showmanship background, absolutely nothing at all. He came from a long line of butchers and farmers, quite a well-to-do family, actually. Um, probably on about the same par as Sir Frederick Treves, but, you know, they were a hard-working, well-to-do family. They lived in Dallington Manor and had plenty of money and plenty of land. But for some reason, Tom left that behind, changed his no- name to Norman, because he was originally Tom Noakes, so he changed his name to Norman, he went to London, worked for various high-class butchers, and then just one day while he was working in Islington, he noticed that the shop next door, which was originally empty, wasn't, and saw a chap outside touting people to come in to see a show. Tom went to see the show, which was an electric lady, liked what he saw, had a chat with the, the gentleman that was running it, and became his assistant. And that basically is how Tom Norman got into showmanship. It wasn't something he was born into. According to his memoirs and books that I've read, Tom Tom Norman was a very pleasant, hardworking chap. He wasn't a drunk. In fact, he was a member of the showman's, the Travelling Showman's Temperance Society that promoted abstinence from drink. He looked after Joseph. He, in fact, looked after all of his clients who probably earned more money than Tom ever did. And he worked hard right up to his death in 1930. When he was um, exhibiting Joseph on Whitechapel Road across from the London Hospital, that's a really interesting section of your book. I've read a bit about the rise and fall of American freak shows that span generally the same time period in Europe and in the UK and in the United States. 
they share the same timeline. It was a phenomenon mm-hmm. that was going on all across in the Western world. But in the United States, anyway, they became hugely popular in the years immediately after the Civil War and kind of dying out in the U.S. in the early decades of the 20th century. And you kind of describe this a little bit in your book as well. Well, in the U.S., the invention of the radio and movies and a wider variety of entertainment available to the working classes had something to do with it, but also that they were absorbed by uh, circuses. So when um, in the United States and in the U.K., in the U.S., we call them dime, dime store museums or something, and um, and they would uh, – they migrated to become the sideshows on midways in traveling circuses and carnivals taken out of the cities. But wherever they were, the showmen who ran these establishments would advertise their human oddities with using words like defies scientific explanation and from another world and unique to all mankind and things like that. And so in your book, you describe Frederick Treves and his students and colleagues at the London Hospital routinely hunting these penny arcades for yeah. human oddities to bring back to show off to their peers. And that's something that I didn't realize that was was going on. So maybe it was a kind of egotistic one-upmanship that was taking place as to who could deliver the weirdest freak of the week or something to the London hospital. And to me, this makes a lot of sense. While we surely there were medical and humanitarian purposes in their interest in abnormal humans, but knowing this about Treves and others at the London hospital kind of puts Merrick's situation there in a much different perspective, don't you think? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. Um, I've got great respect for Frederick Treves, and I think what he did for Joseph was was fantastic. But I do believe there was a slight ulterior motive. You know, I think a bit like a contract. You know, come and stay with come and stay with me as long as you still perform, so to speak, in front of the pathological societies, the medical societies, and also the London elite. And you know, Frederick Treves probably got what he always wanted—a living specimen to do as he pleased. Which is what he did. Even Tom Norman referred to Treves as just like a uh, wealth, uh, a showman just like him, just with yeah. a little bit more money or something like that. Yeah, he did. Yeah, probably yeah. true. That kind of makes it difficult to make a judgment when our primary documents are so limited, you know, when you just have the autobiography of Joseph Merrick and then Treves memoirs and reminisces and then Norman's side of the story because I was thinking like even in one section when Treves referred to a letter that that Joseph wrote where he he uh Treves specifically pointed out that he sent he allowed the letter to be sent unedited yeah which makes people question well you know obviously brings some the question in mind well did did Treves kind of edit or guide the correspondence that Joseph was having with people on the outside. He it was actually it was to Prince Princess Alexandra mm. who he visited who visited him. He jo- Joseph wrote the letter. I allowed the letter to be dispatched and edited. It began my dear princess and ended yours very truly. Um Dr. Trees believed it, the letter was quite unorthodox in its contents. But it, he, but I think F- Frederick Trees believed that it expressed expressed how Joseph felt and it expressed him, you know, rather than editing it. Yeah, I think it expressed Joseph's personality, and maybe and that's probably what Frederick Trees was happy to get across to other people. Back to Norman, um, the circumstances in which, as we we've all seen the David Lynch movie and. Um, but really, this, the situation that Norman had set up for for Joseph on Whitechapel Road was vastly different than what was portrayed in the movie. And Joseph, according to Norman, expressed the desire to leave uh, the London hospital and return to Norman. And I'll get to maybe his motives of showing up at the London hospital, you know, or 
how that came about. But I know there's a section of your book you would like to read that covers a little bit of Tom Norman's relationship with Joseph. So when Joseph first met Tom, they arrived in London. After arriving in London in the late afternoon, Joseph was taken to meet Tom Norman, dressed in a long black coat and a black felt hat with a wooden muffler up to his eyes. He was introduced as Joe. Tom Norman recalled in his memoirs that when he took a good look at Joseph, he thought, oh God, I can't use you. However, when looking into Joseph's eyes, Tom could see pleading and suffering and he felt great pity and sympathy. To put Joseph at ease, Tom shook the nervous young man from Lester's hand and said, well, Mr Merrick, I will call you Joseph if I may. And I think that sort of sums up the relationship between Joseph and Tom, even before it had been set in stone and even before they'd spent time together. I, I mentioned the heavily biased primary source material we have here to deal with between Treves's account and Norman's. Mm. Um, and, and I noted in your book that you quote pretty extensively from Treves' Uh, version of the events unquestioningly and then you do the same for norman so so i'm wondering do you come down on one side or another because the book the book really takes a kind of middle of the road approach neither can be trusted fully yeah it's i mean you've got to go on what trees wrote and what norman wrote it's it is very difficult because both hated each other and i had to be i had to be very careful because i didn't want to show my bias to my reader I personally believe more on the Tom Norman side, maybe because we're related. I don't know. Maybe because I've spoken to Tom's great-granddaughter and she desperately wanted to get her great-grandfather's name, his reputation changed. So I had to be very careful. So I had to look at both sides and I want the reader to to make their own mind up. I don't want to be, I don't want to prejudice anybody. You know, I don't know, I don't know Frederick Trees, I don't know Tom Norman. I can only go on what they wrote and their feelings, which is what I wanted to get across. And then my reader can make their own decision or do their own research. The section that deals with Joseph living at um, the London Hospital, I found it almost like a sad story. Maybe it was because of the way that you inserted Tom Norman's writings in into the section to where it left me questioning, well, was was Joseph really a prisoner of the London hospital, as Norman believed, or, or what was really going on there? So, you know, the popular conception of Treves being Joseph's savior and, and then Joseph you know, finally getting to have a sense of material comfort and, 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 and meet people and um, have more social interactions and things. You kind of shroud that, <laughs> I don't know if it was intentional, but you kind of shroud that, that, whole, that, whole, that whole section with this um, questioning, you know, of, of what was really going on there, where you even bring up maybe a, a psychological regression taking mm. place on at the part of Joseph due, due to stress and and yeah. of, of his situation um, in the London hospital. Mm. Well, I did want to throw that out to the reader to make their own decisions about what was going on between Joseph and um, Dr. Treves. Um, it's difficult because... The books that you read, it shows Dr. Trees as the saviour, but I wanted people to look at it in a different angle. You know, Joseph, the only option Joseph had when he got to London was to go to the London hospital. How he got there, no one knows. You just got to guess. And I do believe that there may have been a little contract between Joseph and Frederick Trees, as in, yes, I'll give you somewhere to live, but you have to do this for me, and you will get free board and lodgings if you do this. And although Joseph did go on holidays, he did meet probably some of the social elite. He did meet the royals. Joseph at heart was an average, hardworking guy that may have missed the social 
interactions and the chit-chat and the fun and the life he had with Tom Norman. And I think that may have brought on some kind of anxiety. You had mentioned Joseph's voyage uh, just in a nutshell for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with the story. After um, Norman's shop is forced to close on Whitechapel Road via Treves' in, uh, intervention and or, or whatever might have taken place there, um, Joseph uh, went and toured Europe with traveling circus and then was possibly robbed of his savings there. We're not quite sure what took place. But his arrival back from Europe and one of the famous incidents of his life is is his arrival at the Liverpool Street Station and being mobbed by all the people and shut into a room, cowering in the corner, as Treves describes it, until he produces uh, Treves' business card to the officials at the Liverpool Street Station. Whereas in your book, you explain several different routes he could have taken Mm-hmm. And none of them seemed to end up with Merrick at the Liverpool Street Station. No. So your contention in your book is that it's most likely that he walked to the London Hospital from however he arrived in London and presented his card there, just uh, in the in the receiving room. Yeah, because the only the only description of Joseph's arrival at the London Hospital is that of Sir Frederick Treves. You know, very dramatized. You know, huddled into a corner and live at Liverpool Street, just like the film, showing the card and Frederick Treves comes along in his horse and carriage and whisks him back to London Hospital. If you read the letters by Sir Francis Cargon, the chairman of the London Hospital, he doesn't mention any of that. And he even queries how Joseph got to the doorstep of the hospital. So through that, I read and read Ford and Howe's book on Joseph Merrick. And unfortunately, they don't list their sources of how they believe he got to Liverpool Street Station or him leaving from Antwerp. So that's the only source I had of his passage. So I started looking more into, well, you know, you're in Ostend. Where's the nearest port? Calais. Quickest route across to Dover. Dover to Victoria, one train, or Dover to London. And I started looking at train maps and noticed, I think it was Holborn Viaduct would be the nearest station to Whitechapel. And maybe Joseph thought getting back to London, he could either see Tom Norman, because it is described that he was his closest friend, spent two, three weeks with him, worked together. Or was he hoping to get back to Leicester? But obviously not finding Tom Norman in London, maybe not being able to get a train back to Leicester, thinking twice about it. And obviously Tom not being there, the the shop on Whitechapel Road was a glass and china dealership. And maybe with, you know, if you can imagine these romantic type scenes, Joseph turns around, finds in his pocket the card from Dr. Frederick Treves and sees a London hospital and thinks, I'll go there. That's the only place I've got left. You know, can't go back to Leicester. His, his father probably didn't want him. His uncle Charles had a growing family and had already been in the workhouse. And maybe that was his only option. Went across to see what, what, what could happen and who could help him. Right. About his uh, family still in Leicester while this is all taking place. That's one of the big mysteries that I'm interested in. And we'll probably never know. But he, Joseph was making the papers, um, as you quote, extensively from the write-up that he received in the local Leicester papers when Mm -hmm. he arrived at the London Hospital. And you always have to wonder, well, you know, someone must have said something to Mm -hmm. the Merricks in in Leicester. They identified Joseph as being from Leicester. You would imagine that that he would have been known locally, Joseph would have, as being, you know, they would have known immediately who they were talking about. So you have to wonder if uh, letters from Joseph to his family back home that are now lost existed Mm -hmm. or, you know, what what kind of relationship Joseph might have kept with some of his family back in Leicester. Yeah, it's always crossed my mind because, you know, researched in the newspaper archives, there was a lot of reports, especially about Joseph's death in the local papers 
And it always makes me wonder whether his father or his stepmother or even his sisters ever read them. But it was his uncle that identified his body, which leads me to believe that Frederick Trees must have known about his family in Leicester and must and Joseph must have been in contact with his uncle Charles because how else would they know to get his uncle Charles down to identify his body right so there must have been some sort of correspondence at some point because if Joseph never spoke about his family in Leicester they wouldn't know about his uncle and they'd want to get in touch with his father first so there must have been some sort of correspondence has to have been yeah you know that that trees would know enough about uh joseph's family back in leicester um but on the one hand not take too seriously some of the things joseph was telling him about his family yeah. back in leicester so yeah it is it's it's strange it's you know that so they must have been in touch with his uncle charles but then i suppose with dr trees writing what he wrote in his book it's sensationalism it's you know he was his mother his mother didn't like him. His mother dumped him in the workhouse. And we all know that's not true. Mm-hmm. And surely, if he'd spoken to his Uncle Charles, he would have known that wasn't true. Because his Uncle Charles, you know, looked after him for two years. I think it was probably more sensationalism to sell his own book, to be honest. Yeah. Now, you uh, quote Joseph as, and I'm not sure if this is from Norman's writings or Treves, I forget which one, but about... Um, Joseph predicting that after he passes away, he would be made into a medical specimen. Dr. Wilfred Grenfell, one of the surgeons at London Hospital, wrote in his memoirs that Joseph used to talk freely of how he would look in a huge bottle of alcohol and end up and to end in his imagination what he was fated to come. So maybe Joseph did know that was going to happen at the end. Right. That that's um interesting to speculate about whether Treves had that conversation with Joseph. Now you had uh, in the book I was kind of confused on a part that you wanted to bring the reader's attention to as far as that, uh during the coroner's inquest where they um where the London hospital specifically um forbade uh, a full autopsy on Joseph. Yeah, um I'm quite surprised because they, I'm trying to find it again, but they um, they said they would not do an autopsy on his body. And then within a few days or the very same day, an autopsy had actually been, not an autopsy, yeah, an autopsy had actually been done. It was agreed, apparently, exactly the same day of the inquest, the House Committee of the London Hospital used its usual Tuesday meeting to discuss Josie's death. It was agreed that the skeleton should be set up in the College Museum after the funeral service, um, which had been held in the chapel and the body handed over to Dr. Treves. But there was the extract about them not letting them do that. I have it. It said, uh, we understand that the committee of the London Hospital refused not only to permit a necropsy of the body of the elephant man, but also declined to allow his body to be preserved. Mm. But slides were made, and I didn't know this, um, kept uh, several skin samples, which were lost in the Blitz. Yeah. Which I was unaware of. We all know that his bones are currently housed in... Uh, out uh, away from the public to uh to where i believe only medical students and things like and and uh, uh, people like that at the london hospital might might be able to actually view his actual bones but they made a reproduction there's a replica of his skeleton on display to the public along with his hat and um and masks you know everyone has seen those um those items um and the cathedral model he made now you've been in the press quoted as wishing his remains to be returned to Leicester. And when I when I was reading your book, I found the information about the various Barnabas Merricks, and there were several of them, to where it's almost hard to keep track. Yeah, um, uh, they uh, se- Several people named Barnabas Merrick uh, down in the family line. But the fact that they were amongst the weaver population in Spitalfields in the East End for several decades, and silk weavers being the laborers who had such a huge impact on that area, and then Joseph being shown 
by Norman on Whitechapel Road and then later his return to the London Hospital, it almost, in a way, almost comes full circle. But the circle is not quite complete until Merrick's remains are returned to Lester. Is that kind of your, your how you, you view the situation? Yeah, I think his remains, his skeleton, I know it depends what you believe in, should be reinterned back with his mother. His skeleton doesn't do anything. They can't get any DNA from it. They can't examine it. His, his bones were bleached and stripped. And they've even said in various documentaries they can't get anything from them. They have a replica of his skeleton. We can all see what it looks like. I just think he should be reinterned back with his mother um, and buried. I just think that's a, a decent thing to do to a, a human being. And what, what is the London Hospital's current position on this? Well, as far as I know, they're, they're, they're happy with what the family, well, for the statement is, that the family are happy for Josie's remains to continue staying at the London Hospital and they're using it for scientific purposes and they won't give them up. That's it. And that's true of the family members of Merrick's that you've met? I've not asked them because I, I, I don't think it's my place to ask them their opinion. I don't want to upset them and I don't want to get, have any type of confrontation. So right. I personally haven't asked the Merrick family. I can only go on what I've read in newspapers and what I was told from Tom Norman's great-granddaughter, who was also campaigning for Josie's remains to be, be brought back to Leicester. Mm-hmm. And your book mentions something that I wasn't aware of, that his flesh was buried in in an unmarked grave it's somewhere in, in East London. I, I don't think we even know the cemetery. No, that was actually on the QED programme, um, which I think was the beginning of the 2000 or the very late 1999, but it's definitely quite a few years ago. The QED program actually begins um, with them explaining that there was a private service and he was buried in an unmarked grave somewhere in London. That's the only only place I've actually heard about it. So currently there is a memorial plaque to Joseph on the grounds of the community college there in Leicester that sits at the site of the workhouse that was put up by the friends of Joseph Carey Merrick. And you, you mentioned in your book that it was closed to the public. And I wasn't aware of that, Mm. um, that maybe you, you have to be a student to enter the grounds or something to view that. Yeah. All schools are locked now. You'll find in Mm. this country, like in America, but you'll find that all schools are locked. And this plaque is, um, inside the, inside Moat College itself. So you can't actually, go in and see it you'd, you'd probably have to ring up make an appointment get checked go through security to actually walk into the school you now most people when they they walk around a city and they see blue plaques they can see oh so and so lived here and it's access, accessible to the public there is nothing in leicester that you can just go and see to know that joseph merrick the elephant man was born and raised there absolutely nothing and i think that's a shame yeah. Wasn't there talk a couple of years ago about putting a statue of Merrick up in Leicester? Yeah, there's been various reports in newspapers. It's it's sort of fashionable for a few weeks and it dies off about having some sort of memorial to Joseph Merrick because, like I said, there's nothing. Yeah. And I've even written to the our um, city mayor, Peter Salisbury, asking for something, asking why there isn't anything. And all he did was direct me to the friends of Joseph Carey Merrick and say there's a plaque in Moat College. And that was it. And you just think this is such an iconic figure. You know, he's known worldwide. And there's nothing, which is typical of Leicester, I suppose. (laughs) We don't actually sort of, you know. The friends of Joseph Carey Merrick also put a memorial stone at the gravesite of his mother. Yeah. Which... Up until that point, it, her the gravestone didn't mention any of her children, and so this one brings attention to the fact that this was the mother of Joseph Carey Merrick, and also lists three uh, three siblings on this 
um, on this mm-hmm. memorial stone, and one of the children, and I met, and I brought this up um, when I interviewed Jeanette Sitton um, at the time when I did my interview with her. This was considered a new discovery that she had discovered an additional sibling of Joseph Merrick, and and named John, and. So his name was added to this memorial stone. So it, it will list Joseph Merrick and three of his siblings, including the name John. But your research has uncovered that this uh, child, John Merrick, was not related to Joseph Merrick. Or maybe he was related dis- some, in some way, but he certainly wasn't um, a brother of no. Joseph's. No, he wasn't, not at all. John Thomas, though he did exist, he was the the illegitimate child of a young girl called Jane Merrick, who lived at number 11 and number 4 Lee Street. It's obviously the same street as um, the Merricks, but they, they lived further down the road. And, he, you know, he did die. He only lived three months and he died of smallpox. I've got his death certificate. But he was the um, the son of a, of a young sixteen year old girl called Jane Merrick. Uh, maybe distantly related. I have tried connecting the family, and I can't connect them. So it, it'd have to be very very distantly related. But there were a lot. It's surprising through my research. There are a lot of Merricks in Leicester that were not um, connected. Probably very distantly, but not you know straight away. Yeah, so he was the the child of a Jane Merrick. And is are the friends of Joseph Carey Merrick aware that of this memorial stone being incorrect? Do you know? Um, I don't know whether Jeanette is or whether May is. I, I don't know, um, but I do know that two of the other friends who are clusters of friends of Joseph Carey Merrick, they're aware of it uh, because they've they've got the book mm-hmm. and they've read various. Um, posts that I've I've used and various newspaper articles. So a couple of the friends I know are aware. And so that was a a, a pretty uh, interesting discovery. And and during the course of your research, you also it was when when you also discovered that you were related to Tom Norman. Is that right? Yeah. Right. So would mm-hmm. would that the relationship that you have with Tom Norman would that be the most interesting and exciting thing that you discovered during your research into the book or is there something that even trumps that no I think that um really trumped it to be honest <laughs> that was quite a um a, a, a jaw stopper when I was researching Tom Norman and suddenly realized that you know yeah we're related <laughs> that was quite a shock a big shock still is and um, I just have a couple more questions that came from one of our listeners. Um, did you have any moments where you felt like you really had an insight into Joseph Merrick being such a famous name? Was there is there any particular moment that stood out to where you felt like, oh, you grasped what he must have been going through? Or yeah, there was. Um, I think it was when I went to visit his mother's grave. And I just sort of stood there and I started thinking about Joseph and I, I'd been for, been round, I'd walked around Leicester. And um, I just suddenly, I don't know, had this like wow mo- moment of, um, I couldn't quite understand what I was, I was looking into these people's lives and know more and more about Joseph's background and Joseph's life. I don't know, it gave me more em- empathy towards him. It's really difficult to explain because, you know, you see people see the, the film or read the books and they think they know him. But it isn't until you actually walk the streets that he walked, both in London and Leicester, and get to know his family, that you, I don't know, it's, but you had, I had a feeling for him. It's very strange. It's hard to explain. What would yeah. your what would your advice be for someone wanting to research a historical figure, if you have any? <laughs> that was another reader question. <laughs> I, I don't know because I, I I don't know. I class myself as incredibly lucky because I I live in the same city where Joseph was born. You know, I live, you know, five minutes from the record office. I've managed to get in touch with his family. I don't know what I'd say to anybody because I haven't got a clue what I'm going to write my next book on. 
so I can't even give any advice. So you're I'm just really... kind of uniquely placed to um, to do this book. Yeah, I, 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 I thought you had mentioned you. So you're not work um, currently working on anything to follow up. Um, there's there's a few things I'm looking at. I'm just sort of dabbling in in little things. I I, I love murder, which some people may find is odd, but I love murder and I love strange strange stories. And I also like finding out about people as well. Um, I like researching. I love genealogy. I like finding out what people did and do and their families and their social background. So there's, there's a few little things, but I'm not 100% sure yet. Writing this book, I don't know if you mentioned it at the beginning, um, but when you were initially approached to, with the idea to write this book and you did such a great job, uh, now, now are you kind of in that um, zone? Where you think that that um, you know there will be there will be a follow up or a second book coming out of you? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, definitely. But um, I'm just at the moment trying to enjoy enjoy this one. I've I've keep saying to people, I'm so new to this. I've never written a book before. Never written an article before. Absolutely nothing. So I'm just trying to enjoy this one as well as sitting on my laptop and researching all sorts of stuff. But yeah, hopefully there will be another book. Well, I hope so, and I, I know everyone who's read Joseph is probably looking forward to um, a, a second book by you. Just the uh, the amount of detail that you you put into it. If you if you know nothing about the city of Leicester, it really doesn't matter because you come away with such a greater sense of the life of the Merrick families in yeah. the 18th and 19th century. You describe in such rich detail. What I wanted to do. Yeah. So I wish you all the best with this book. Thank and you. Like I said, I really look forward to reading the next one, <laughs> and, and and I hope you come back on the show when after that one's published. Thank you. <laughs> thanks. All right. All right. Thanks for coming on the show today, Joe. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right. And that was Joe Viger Mungovan speaking about her new book, Joseph: The Life, Times, and Places of the Elephant Man which is available now via Mango Books at their website, mangobooks.co.uk. And you may also find it on Amazon. I'd like to thank again Joe for agreeing to come on the show today. Thanks to those who supplied their questions for Joe, and thank you to Adam Wood for lending his design for this episode's podcast artwork. We are sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, conference presentations, and author interviews about Jack the Ripper, Victorian true crime, and whatever else suits our fancy. As always, I thank everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.